positive view is that the Federal Reserve uh, has peaked in raising interest rates in this cycle and probably will reduce interest rates, according to some, four times in 2024. Uh, secondarily, uh, inflation you know, is, is perceived to be dead, if not uh, dying, if not dead. Uh, the third perception is that uh, the labor uh, markets are so strong that uh, income will be generated, uh, consumption will continue to grow at pretty rapid rates. Uh, and then there are other, you know, more, more, more positive statements concerning a recovery in the manufacturing sector, et cetera. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, by now, you know to think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that are confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal, as always, is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. On today's episode, we are welcoming back our favorite Wall Street team from Odeon Capital Conversations. I can't believe we're already on our fourth go around with Dick Beauvais, Matt Van Alstine, and John Aiden Byrne. It's been quite a journey over the last 10 months or so, and I have to say the timing of today's conversation couldn't be more perfect. Just yesterday, the Federal Reserve again raised interest rates to the highest level in 22 years. It signaled a significant change in the economy, or maybe we'll find out soon. And let me tell you, the economy feels like we're venturing into uncharted territory this time. Right before we went on, I was chatting with John about this, and he said he's never seen anything like this. We've seen some extraordinary developments already this morning when the Commerce Department announced an unexpected and healthy 2.4% growth in GDP. On top of that, labor reported a decline in employment claims, keeping unemployment down to an impressive 3.6%. That's 18 consecutive months below 4% and nearly matching 50-year lows. It's a far cry from what we were discussing in our first interview just nine months ago with Dick, Matt, and John, which seems like a lifetime ago. And then we were talking about some daunting changes like 8-plus percent inflation, soaring interest rates, higher unemployment, a crypto collapse, the looming specter of a banking crisis, not to mention a war in Ukraine and the possibility of a recession. The world seemed like quite an uncertain place, but fast forward to today, things have shifted in surprising ways because interest rates have indeed climbed, but on the bright side, unemployment is still pretty low. The war in Ukraine still wages on, but the talk of a recession seems to have subsided. Inflation has been halved, and the stock market's showing signs of you know, new life. So it's undeniable that we are living in never normal times. And the only thing that seems certain, unfortunately, is the growing polarization in politics, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in some future episode because we got a presidential election coming up. But for today, what 
we do know is that the landscape of our economy has been reshaped and our esteemed Odeon Capital team is here to help us guide us through this maze and what some people might refer to as a mess. So without further ado, let's dive into today's conversation with Dick, Matt, and John. Few quick introductions. Dick Beauvais, a highly respected financial analyst for over 50 years and chief financial analyst at Odeon Capital Group. You've likely seen him on shows like CNBC, Bloomberg News, Fox News, CNN, or read one of his many, of many, many, many print interviews or forecasts. Matt Van Alstein is co-founder and managing partner of Odeon Capital Group, a leading Wall Street executive. Matt and Dick team up each week on their podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations, and we have the host of Odeon Capital Conversations here, John Aiden Byrne, who has also a long history on Wall Street. Congrats to all of you because Odeon Capital Conversations is now ranked in the top 2% of all podcasts, and it's one of the top rated business podcasts on Apple. John's also the host of the very popular Dig Life Deep podcast, on which I visit each episode for an update on Future Shock 2.0. So welcome, gentlemen. We have so much to talk about. Dick, I'm going to go to you first. And I, I first want to replay a really short clip here of something you said about nine months ago. Then I'd like your comments, and we'll follow that with Matt, and see if you still agree with this, and then dig into what does yesterday's interest rate hike mean for our listeners. So let me find this clip. Only about nine seconds, Dick. I, I think that things are going to be really good in the next year, even though I think we've got to go through a recession of unknown severity before we get there. So, Dick, that was pretty good news back then. I'm not sure everybody would agree with you. Where do you still stand? Would you would you say that again? And you know, let's and, and then dig into yesterday's hike. First, I've got to apologize because. I didn't hear the clip uh, that you just ran, but... Uh, okay. Well, basically, you said that there was good news. You thought we might have a recession of undetermined length and, and severity, but you were pretty hopeful. Yeah, well, my, my, my view on recession, you know, quite frankly, was wrong. I mean, I, I can't uh, tell you that uh, often enough because I said it repeatedly that I believe that there would be a recession. And my view uh, was that uh, because money supply uh, was was contracting, and because uh, you know there were uh, significant problems uh, in in getting the economy going again, I thought that we would have to go through a, a slight recession and then come out of it, you know, in reasonably good shape in 2024. The uh, problem, and of course, I I was strongly arguing that uh, inflation would would come down dramatically, but. The problem I have today is that I, I do not have a strong view about where we're going. I can give you what the positive view is. The positive view is that the Federal Reserve has peaked in raising interest rates in this cycle and probably will reduce interest rates, according to some, four times in 2024. Uh, secondarily, inflation you know, is, is perceived to be dead, if not dying, if not dead. The third perception is that uh, the labor markets are so strong that uh, income will be generated, consumption will continue to grow at pretty rapid rates, and then there are other, you know, more, more, more positive statements concerning a recovery in the manufacturing sector, etc. I believe that all those things are positive. I believe that they will drive the economy further, you know, on the upside. 
But on the other hand, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that we still have an inverted yield curve. In fact, the inversion continues to get you know larger. We, we still have a, a consumer who is overextending him or herself in debt, which is going to create, I think, significant loan losses going forward. And, the, and, and therefore, I, I would like to jump on the side of that we're, we're going to move up sharply, you know, in the economy uh, over the next few quarters in, in the next you know, year or so. But I, I, my conviction levels are low on that. And my conviction levels have been blasted apart in terms of, you know, the recession theory. So I think, as I wrote yesterday, we're in the crossroads and we have to see over the next couple of months, you know, what's going to happen with the labor figures, what's going to happen with the inflation figures and what the Fed will do about it. But at the moment, the stock market is roaring and it's roaring for decent reasons. It's just that my conviction levels are not where they should be. And Dick, you've done this for a long time. Where would our current timing in history in terms of how challenging it is to make predictions about the economy, where does this rank in terms of all the years that you've done this? Well, unfortunately, I think that it's always been very difficult to call where the economy is going. In the 1970s, you had these cross currents between the increase in inflation and an economy that was growing. And in, in the uh, 1990s, you, you, you had this huge influx of, uh, you know, funding to a technology which drove the uh, creation of the Internet. You know, when we got to 2005 to 2007, this one I did get right. Very few people, however, saw that the housing sector would collapse. And so it's, it's, it's never easy to tell where the economy is going to go. But at the moment, investors, you know, have total conviction that uh, it's a soft landing or no no landing, and that the economy is going to grow. Uh, as I say, I would like to have the same level of conviction that they do. I, I don't, but uh, hopefully I'll get there because I don't like being out of sync with the market. Matt, where, what about you? Where, where do you fall? I mean, you, you, you know, I don't know the, the, where you were 10 months ago when we first started the series and uh, where you are now and, and similar to Dick. I mean, where's your, where's your commitment and your conviction levels? Well, I, I try to be rules based, and I, I would I would, I think I agreed with Dick nine or ten months ago that I thought a recession was imminent. You know, the the joke in my mind back then and still is, economists, which I'm not pretending I am one, have predicted ten of the last two recessions. You know, one of my mentors when I was starting out had this poster in his office. It was Bob Farrell's ten investing rules, and there's two that come to mind. One is that when all the experts and forecasts agree, something else is going to happen. And right now, everyone seems to be agreeing that there's not going to be a recession. And it, it kind of is shocking to me because everyone's just looking at one indicator, which is the stock market. And the stock market, you know, as the efficient market hypothesis says, is never wrong. It prices in all the information. But if that were true, then you would never have crashes like we had in March of 2020 or or of 2008 when, when the stock market declined rapidly or 2001 when it you know, when the NASDAQ went down almost 90%. The, the, the truth is, if you're investing in the stock market, you are biased to being optimistic. And then you look over at the bond market, and the bond market is clearly telling you a recession is coming. And, you know, I, when, I, when I say that, I mean, I'm talking about the inverted yield curve between the two-year and the 10-year, which has predicted, has an accurate track record of 100% predicting recessions within 18 months of the first inversion. 
So that would put a recession coming in Q4 of this year or maybe Q1 of next year, but it still is an inverted bond market. And it's telling you the opposite of what the stock market is telling you. So either the stock market is pricing in rapid decline in interest rates and rapid decline in, in inflation and is is correct and the bond market is wrong or the bond market is correct. The second rule on that I think of from the Bob Farrell rule is that exponential rapidly rising or falling markets usually go further than you think, but they never correct by going sideways. And we have a really expensive stock market right now. So I think I'm a little bit more nervous than I am than I was nine or 10 months ago, because, you know, everything we're at a five and a quarter percent interest rates. We're at a extremely valued stock market, which is broadly led by five or six, you know, trillion dollar market cap companies. And the rest of the stock market has been basically sideways for the year. And then the other indicator is consumer confidence, which doesn't match the stock market at all. The, the, the polls on the economy are worse than, you know, than, than the presidential approval rating, which is also relatively low. So the, the consumer and the broad indicators are telling you we're in a really tough market. And one of the things that comes to mind is people who work on, you know, you look at this um, UPS agreement that just came out where part-time workers are getting a 7% raise. Well, a 7% raise vis-a-vis, you know, the, the, the price of the CPI index three years ago means that they are still underwater compared to where they were three years ago. So, you know, I, I wonder where the consumer spending is coming from. And then you go and look at credit card use and credit card debt is at the highest level it's ever been. So it seems like this is an economy that's that's rearing ahead, but it might be rearing ahead on fumes. So, Matt, we talk about this all the time with, uh, in fact, we just had somebody from Deloitte on last week, Steve Hatfield, the, the global future of work leader at Deloitte. And the topic was about moving beyond productivity and, and needing new metrics. We just need a new measure. So what you just shared was a rules guy. And, and again, I'm far from... You, you, may do, you may say you're not an economist. I'm not a finance or an economist guy. However, is it possible that some of the metrics and so, are, are things moving too fast for some of the metrics to be valid that we used to use? I, I, I think the, the, the big unknown in this is the, the, the number of bills that came out of the COVID lockdowns. You know, you started with the PPP bill. And then I think Trump had one more rescue and then Biden put in his that, that sent out money. Is There's not really been a time in the history of our country where you could look back and see just this giant injection of cash to businesses and consumers. And so I think if you're going to measure where the metrics are missing is that cash injection into the economy is still out there and it's still working its way through. And I don't think it's necessarily showing up in the numbers. I'm not sure it's necessarily speed. I think it's more of the measurement of money. I think that's something that Dick has t- touched on a lot too, is that injection of money is not able to be accurately measured by the tools that we, that the Fed puts out and that other independent analysts have because it's kind of just guesswork at this point. Yeah, I'm just going to come in here real quick and direct this at Dick and Matt. And Dick has looked at the labor force numbers, and so has Matt very closely. And we spoke about this, Ira, just before we went on the air, about the number of entrants, new entrants into the workforce annually. 
in US, and this speaks to our demographics, which is a topic we can pick up later with Dick um, on the latest UN numbers on demographics worldwide. 500, half a million or so annually today versus maybe two and a half million a generation or two ago. And I know there's controversy over that, but it would help explain in part our historically low unemployment rate. I mean, unemployment was low 20, 30 years ago, if it was 5%, now it's hovering in the 3% range. So there's a whole lot of distortions in, in the data. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the unemployment rate, you know, some people point to the PPP money and the, the other stimulus packages as the reason for the unemployment rate. But then if you look at like the disability, the number of people on disability, it's skyrocketed. And the, the people who, you know, the, 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 the labor workforce that volunteers that says, hey, I'm out there in the workforce trying to get a job has declined by almost 2 million people since COVID, which would account, you know, if those people hadn't left the workforce, you'd be at closer to a 5 or 6% unemployment rate. So there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think I, I kind of am biased towards it's the money supply, but it could be any number of reasons. I mean, COVID, you know, changed a lot of people's perspectives on how they wanted to live their lives. And, and some people are like, why am I slaving away at this dumb job working for a boss that doesn't respect me? I'm going to just stay at home. And they left the workforce. And that drives up wages and drives down the unemployment rate. Yeah. And with that, I mean, the, the, I get, I won't say it's the counter argument because what you say is true. There's, there are, there's an extraordinary number of people that are, that now are on disability, but there's also a skyrocketing number of dis disabled people who are now employed because with remote work, now people have been allowed that to happen. So, you know, that may be a wash, but what John and I were talking about before, when we look at the demographics is that, you know, for the last, for the 50 years that we've had this low, you know, that we had to go back to 1960 to, to match the unemployment rate, you know, when the baby boomers were coming to the market, we had between two and two and a half million people every year, new people, new blood, not that all of them were qualified or skilled or good people, but we had two and a half million people coming in the workforce every year took a little dip in the 80s with the Gen X and then millennials came into the workforce and we had another two, two and a half million people every year. So for 50 years, we've been averaging about two million people coming into the workforce every year. Project, we have zero working age population growth and it looks and the numbers are pretty scary because it looks like over the next two or three years, we're gonna have 500,000 or less new employees coming into the workforce because our birth rate collapsed in 2012 you know, eventually that catches up. So part of it is there just may not be enough people. There are there's bodies, but there may not be enough people that have the skills or, as you said, Matt, you know, willing to work for peanuts anymore. And they have options. And there's there's a lot of people off the grid. <laughs> there's an amazing number of people on the Fivers and Upworks and and you know probably on the on the underground economy. And similar well, to that, Ira, not to divert too much from it, but not only are, are more and more people working from home, but we're starting to see there, there soon is going to be this commercial real estate bubble. I forget how many trillions of dollars it is where it matures and, and, and a lot of banks are going to be holding this and there's going to be a lot of unused office space, particularly in San Francisco. I can't remember some of the other cities that were near the top of the list, but I guess I'll, I'll kick this off over to Dick. Dick, do you see the commercial real estate bubble as something that could potentially push us into a recession as it looms? Or what type of effect do you think it's going to have on the economy? Well, obviously, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, losses, you know, in the, in the banking system. And for, uh, you know, private equity funds related to the uh, you know, commercial real estate sector, 
But I, I've got to admit, I don't believe that it's going to be a massive problem. And I think that uh, if you think about the fact that uh, we supposedly, well, not supposed, we have a significant increase in the demographics uh, of people who are in the age where they want their first house, where they have their first marriage, where they have their first children. And therefore, the demand for housing is increasing dramatically. On the other side, we have, you know, this empty space, which is showing up in office buildings. Well, you know, my view is that there will basically be a conversion of that office space into condominiums. I can't tell you the, the biggest shock I had one time, you know, I don't know, about 30 years ago, when I saw a woman walking with her baby carriage down Wall Street. <clears throat> and I'm wondering, you know, how in heaven's name is a woman with a baby carriage walking down Wall Street? And the reason, of course, was that all that we were in the midst of a major reconfiguration of office buildings in that sector of uh, Manhattan, which resulted in condominiums replacing empty office space. So as, as long as we have a, a housing shortage, and I think we do have one, then basically, if there's some large amount of empty real estate that opens up that can be utilized for, if you will, living space, then I, I don't think that we're going to have as big a collapse in, in the real estate market as most people think. Now, obviously, if you work out the mathematics, you know, you know the, 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 the loans were taken out from the banks when rates were, you know, maybe, you know, three, four percent. The rates are now, you know, more than double that. And therefore, you know, the value of the building has gone down. You know, the, the, the loan may be bigger than the value of the building. And therefore, there's a problem there that has to be resolved. But I, I don't think it's going to be, a, I don't think it's going to be as massive as, let's say, when, when President Reagan changed the um, depreciation rules on commercial real estate when you had one heck of a decline, you know, as a result of that. The, the, the place that I think that you're going to see the biggest amount of losses are in cars, automobiles. I, I, I reflect, uh, again, I like to take a small example to make a big point. But, you know, a few days ago, I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, you know, I bought my car three years ago. It cost me $63,000. The value of the car, according to the Blue Book, is $36,000. My loan is $45,000, and I got four years to go in paying this loan. How in heaven's name do I get out of it? I said, you don't. You're in. If you take a look at the number of cars that were sold over the last two to three years, there's got to be at least a half a million people in that same situation, probably as, as many as a million. And they're not all going to say, you know, I, I've got an 802 FICO score and therefore I'm going to make this payment. They're going to say, I can get a cheap car that I don't have to pay, you know, another four years on. And, you know, to hell with the bank. <laughs> They're going to take the car back. So I, I think that's that's the undercurrent that, that starts to get worrisome. The same thing may be happening with credit card loans. The same thing may be happening with a, a variety of personal loans which are out there. And, and I think that's that's the thing that worries you. In addition to which, going back to something that was said earlier, I, I don't believe most of the numbers that, that come out of the Federal Reserve or the Census Bureau, not because anybody's trying to make numbers up that are not correct, but because I think the task is impossible. For example, the Federal Reserve money supply number does not include any money in 
institutional money market funds. And then I'll give you one more that'll drive you, that'll make you wonder. If you've got $99,000 in a bank, that is money. The bank count, the Federal Reserve counts that as money. If you increase that to $101,000 in the bank, it's no longer money. The Fed doesn't count it as money any longer. So what we've done at Odeon is we've created this Odeon M3, if you will, index, which basically takes, you know, the way M3 was calculated, you know, before they stopped doing it, you know, about 25 years ago, and we put it back together. And what we find is that by adding, you know, the money above $100,000, adding the institutional money market funds, we really haven't seen a decrease in the money supply. You know, I know I said earlier that the money supply was decreasing, but that's, you know, before we put this together and we saw that the money supply is actually increasing. So if the money supply is actually increasing, then all of the actions taken by the Fed are questionable. You look at the labor numbers. Every, every month, the Labor Department publishes four numbers to show what the change in labor has been for that month. And these numbers don't agree with each other. Sometimes one of them is going down and others are going up. You know, the, 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 the adjusted numbers with a REMA or whatever they call the statistical methodology, you know, is widely divergent from, you know, what is happening in, in terms of uh, the non-adjusted numbers. And, you know, there's something which uh, Matt talks about all the time, which is the birth-death, you know, if you will, calculation, which is in the establishment, you know, seasonally adjusted numbers, and the birth-death calculation can be bigger, and, and that's simply an estimate of how many companies were created last month and how many people did they employ. It's a, it's a total estimate. Nope, it, it is a complete estimate. That number can be bigger than the change in the labor force. So you, you really have to be careful in terms of, of what, what you accept as a real number. You have to be careful in terms of jumping with, you know, a point of view related to these numbers. And, and you, can, you, can get, you can get blindsided, I think, uh, you know, a, a lot with, with what's going on. And, and the one that's blindsided me the most, you know, for the last year is I was convinced that the money supply was contracting. I was convinced that as a result of this contraction, inflation would go down, the economy would go into recession. And then I discovered, you know, once we redid the numbers, the money supply isn't contracting. So, you know, th that was a shock to me and a shock to the theory that I was using. And what it's telling me is that, you know, we still may have that recession, but, you know, as long as money keeps pumping, you know, it's, 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 it's probably not going to happen. And, and just if I might, one, one last issue. If you have all these people working and they're in 401k plans, at the end of the week, bi-week, month, whenever they get paid, a certain percentage of their money goes into that 401k plan. That money is directed to the money manager. The money manager has an indenture which says that I have to invest it. I can't say I think the market's going to go down. I must invest this money. So as, as employment rises, the money supply rises, the money going into the hands of investment manager rises, the stock market rises. It's, it's, so it's not sure. I'm not sure exactly what the stock market is telling us other than there are a lot of people working, there's a lot of money being created, and that's being put to use. And Dick can um, maybe elaborate or clarify on the money supply methodology used by the Fed, Dick. That's 
related to the fact that they never anticipated interest rates to rise this far, and they never saw these large funds moving from accounts under 100,000 to, to money market funds or to other entities that pay higher yield. I mean, there's a reason why they, they got it entirely wrong, correct? Yes. In other words, again, I, I don't want to ascribe any ill feeling or any uh, that, that anybody's doing anything politically or anyone is doing anything incorrect. These are all, you know, hardworking people. They want to do things right. They spend all their time trying to figure out how to make sure that they're doing things right. But they miss things. And, and the thing that they missed most, you know, in the last year was that interest rates went up. And when interest rates went up, people were not going to keep their money in bank accounts. They were going to put it into institutional money market funds. And, you know, the Federal Reserve doesn't count that in the money supply anymore. <laughs> they used to count it many decades ago. They don't do it anymore. So they missed it. The other thing that they missed was that they were destroying the value of assets in the American banking system. So I don't believe that we have solved the banking crisis at all in any way, in any fashion. I think it's as strong today as it was in March. It's just that we're more aware of it. But, you know, the Fed did increase interest rates 25 basis points yesterday. That did drive, you know, the value of the assets held by banks down. That reduces the capital in the banking industry. And that led to, this, this happened this morning, the Federal Reserve and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation came out with a 1,100-page set of new regulations for the banking industry in the United States. I'm not going to tell you I read it because I may <laughs> never read it, and, and it just came out. But the one thing that is evident is they're demanding more equity in, in, in the banks, and they're demanding you know, more honest you know, accounting standards in the banks. So we, we are now thinking about dealing with the banking crisis, but we have not dealt with it to this point. It has not gone away. It is still with us, and it's going to affect the economy, I think, going forward. I'd like to bring Matt into that, too, because I know, Matt, you were you in the past, you, you, you basically had, you talked about a doom loop, even with the banks, and, you know, you get your feel on that. But going back to something Dick had said uh, about even with the agencies not measuring things correctly and estimating, we had a discussion with John before we went on about those demographics that the Census Bureau and the Labor Department do not agree on the working age population. So one saying that no, we're good, and the other one saying no, we have zero growth. So and <laughs> you know so and the Census Bureau just can't figure out how the data is used from the Census Bureau to predict that there's a working age population deficit. Matt, where where do you fall? I'm I'm curious, where do you fall on the commercial real estate? But then how does that, if any, play into what your feelings are about the, you know, are is there still a looming bank banking crisis or has it eased with, you know, things over the last couple of months? Well, I, I, I agree with Dick on the commercial real estate broadly, that this is not the iceberg that's going to bring down the Titanic. It, it, it's not it's not that big of a deal to the average person that certain commercial real estate loans are underwater and that they're going to eventually, you know, be have to be written off by the banks or the hedge funds or the pension funds that own those loans. And that's going to be a problem to those people. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like one of those, those, if it bleeds, it leads and, you know, financial reporting is kind of a boring industry and you have this giant 
you know, awesome story about how no one's going to work anymore and every commercial real estate loan in the country is going to zero and we're all going to die. And it's a good story, but it necessarily doesn't mean that to every, every person that said, if you follow, you know, follow the money, a lot of regional banks are going to have a lot of problems if they're forced to mark to market those loans through a write down process through a bankruptcy. And I agree with Dick that eventually, you know, the, the solution will be occupancy of those buildings, whether it's residential or commercial, it's just going to be at a, at a revalued loan amount. And the banks that take those hits eventually are going to suffer where I really disagree with Dick on, on like the economy is, you know, he talks about the, the, the friend that has a, a four year, four, four years left on his car loan. And he's $10,000 underwater. And what do I do? Well, either you're going to, you know, you're going to default on your loan, ruin your credit and you're going to do that because you're paying off a loan that's underwater, $2,500 a year for four years. So you're talking about $200 a month. Like you're going to ruin your credit for $200 a month. No, you're going to keep that car and pay off the loan. And eventually somewhere closer to the loan payoff point, the, the loan will go into, into the money again, because the car is not going to zero. It's going to go down to, you know, with one year left, you'll have $8,000 left on your loan. And the car will be worth $10,000. Eventually you're going to do that. I just don't see people collectively or you know unilaterally throwing away their credit and ruining their credit because their car is underwater because they still need a car good luck getting your next car loan after you defaulted on your last one but when you go to the the credit card market well you can't you know when when you're when when you're sitting around the dinner table and you have a budget and you have an income and you have you know your needs you you have to pay for your, provide for your housing you have to provide for your food you need your transportation to get to your job you need to pay your utilities somewhere on that list is your credit card bill eh, i think that's where the real risk is i think people stop paying credit card bills long before they stop paying off car loans and i think that's my biggest disagreement with what dick said but i agree with him on the commercial real estate front and another one that's about to be added to a lot of young families student loans Obviously, with the Supreme Court decision, those are going to start coming up, I believe it's in September. So I'd love to hear uh, your takes. Matt, we'll kick off with you this time. Um, how much of an impact do you think the student loans kicking back in is going to have on the economy? I, I actually think that that is a real risk. I mean, I there, there's no real good data on that because, you know, the 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 Going down again, back to what I said, when you have your budget, you're sitting around your kitchen table saying, what can I afford? What can't I afford? I mean, this administration sure doesn't seem to be biased towards enforcing payment. And so if they send out those those you know invoices saying, hey, your student loan, which you haven't paid for the last three years because we've just decided as a country we're not going to require repayment on student loans anymore, now you have to pay it. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that someone that that is the tipping point is going to rush to start repaying that because all the indicators are from the government and from at least 50% of the population, which you know supports the Democrat Party, which has been basically publicly advocating that all these loans should be written off, is telling you all you have to do is wait it out. To me, it's the, the parallel is is immigration. You know, when when Ronald Reagan gave amnesty to everyone that was here, the lesson was all you have to do is wait long enough. And eventually you're going to get legal. And I think that's the message that's being sent out on student loans. It's all you have to do is wait long enough. And eventually you're not going to have to pay your student loan off. And so I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be an, an iceberg that brings down the economy. I, I think the real issue is the money supply. And I look at Dick's M3 calculations and I'm scratching my head. I'm like, 
how is this real? Like, how is it possible that the money supply is still growing? And then you go back and you go back to 2020 and 2021 and, and even 2022 when the Fed was talking about, okay, June of 2022, we're going to start shrinking our balance sheets. We're going to get rid of, you know, uh, $60 billion of treasuries every month. And we're going to get rid of 30 or $40 billion of mortgages every month. And we're going to do this consistently until our balance sheet is zero. Well, fast forward, they've gotten rid of roughly $500 billion over the last 18 months. And so they're not anywhere close to their targets. And none of it is through selling of, of securities. It's all through maturity of securities. And so I, I, this, this is a real struggle. I mean, the only, the only indicator that I look at that gives me confidence that I think a recession is still coming is the inverted, in, inverted yield curve because everything else is all green lights. I'll just come in here real quick. And, you know, the, the numbers are jaw-dropping. If you look at total household debt in the U.S. now, is at $17 trillion, uh, record credit card debt of $1 trillion. Matt mentioned the student loans. Yeah, they may get permanently deferred or students will decide, look, we've been given, you know, we've been misled here. We were promised relief and we're not getting relief. It's, it's hard to say, but it's going to become a hot political item. It could, I suppose, become a drag on housing because a lot of the student loan borrowers are, are young people who you would tend to think would be into creating households. But th there's another interesting side to all of this, and Dick has looked at it closely, is the um, number of consumers now tapping into the equity on the rising value of their homes, HELOC loans. And there's some big projections on that, that the, the borrowing from that is going to be just um, a quantum leap you know, at the present pace. And that's where consumers are now tapping. Um, they, they've, they've eased off, I understand, on credit card borrowing, but I know Dick has looked at that uh, recently. Well, well, basically, let's assume that uh, there were three pools of money available to consumers. First was the payments as a result of government stimulus that occurred through the pandemic. And that the consumers, you know, were able to increase the size of their bank accounts meaningfully with that money, but then they spent it. And, and you know, at least uh, J.P. Morgan Chase is estimating by the end of this year, that money will be all gone. The second pool is the borrowings that they get under the credit cards, uh, the credit card situation. And, you know, so the consumers have been charging into that area. A few, a couple of months ago, the, the growth in credit card loans year over year was 16% you know, which was clearly unsustainable. But last week, for the first time, you know, credit card lending went down. So now we go to the third pool, which is that houses, housing prices have risen appreciably over this last decade. And there's now people not worrying about being underwater on their housing loan. They're finding that they have a massive amount of equity in that housing, uh, you know, situation in the price of their homes. and and basically. They can tap that, uh, you know, equity, and they can tap it at a lower price than borrowing under the credit card, because you can discount, you can get a tax break on the interest you pay on a home equity loan, and you get no tax break, obviously, on the interest you pay on your credit card loan. And they haven't really tapped into that home equity fully yet. So my guess is that if I got a job, I'm getting an increase in my income. You know, the house, my house has gone up in, in value. Why not, you know, buy a wreck vehicle and, and take the money out of the house? Why not go 
take the kids and, and go to Europe for, uh, you know, a week and take the money out of the value of the house. So I think that, you know, that's that's why I'm at this crossroads. You know, I, we, we've been talking about all these negative issues it, that could impact the economy, but that, that's a positive factor. It's the thing that's driving the economy, which is consumer spending. I don't see consumer spending dying here because I think there's more, there's another big pool of equity they can tap in order to get the money they want to do what they want going forward. Dick, going from consumer debt, let's talk about national debt. That's been making headlines too. It continues to grow, but often feel like, and I'm speaking from my own experience too, it's it's one of those things, almost like a unicorn, where it's like, we talk about it all the time. Are we ever going to see real ramifications like typical American families of getting to a point where the national debt is going to impact not just the economy, but people's everyday lives. Are you seeing anything in that regard with your forecast? No, <laughs> unfortunately. I, well, I mentioned I was wrong on the recession. I'm going to tell you another story where I was wrong. Uh, in 1972, I went into my boss's office and I said, you know, his name was Walter McConnell and he is my mentor and he was a really brilliant, wonderful person. I said, Walter, you know, th this debt situation is simply untenable. This money, uh, you know, that is owed by the U.S. government simply cannot be repaid. You know, it's it's going to be a disaster. He said, look, calm down. He said, the first thing is, I agree with you that at some point this whole thing is going to blow up. But, you know, I can't tell you whether it's going to be next week, next year, 20 years from now. Well, it's 50 years from then, and it hasn't blown up. So my, my view is that as long as the U.S. dollar is accepted as the world's reserve currency, that this debt will continue to grow and, and it will not create a problem for the U.S. economy. When, and I do believe this when will happen, I know Matt doesn't, but I do, when the U.S. dollar is, it reaches the point where it is no longer the dominant currency in the world, that's when this debt will cause a collapse in the U.S. economy. But I have no idea when that's going to happen. I, I, oh, I, I think you misrepresented me. I totally agree with you. I just don't think there's any indication that it's anywhere close to imminent. And history tells you that you need a basically a world war to 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 change the the, the global monetary system. And I, I just don't think that the debt itself will be the reason it comes down. So I think I completely agree with you. I I, I don't know that we disagree on that point. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Well, speaking of world wars, there's two other issues that are they're out there on the table talked a lot about table issues. We talked about credit card debt and, and tuitions and inflation and housing. There's, there's two other issues that we hear about every day and just like to get your opinion. Not, one is about AI. Is how do you feel that or, or will it? I mean, what, what impact might it have on what we're talking about, on our economy? Obviously, it's, it's driving the you know, a, a lot of the the the, um, the stock market. But what down the road, I mean, what impact do you believe it will have, good or bad, on the economy? Oh, I, I, I think it's, I think it's magnificent. I think AI is one of the best things that's ever happened to the United States, okay, uh, in, in, in the United States techno, techno, technological area. You know, if if you know, people think that AI is something new. It, it, it's not. I mean, the banks have been using AI for decades. If you have a credit card with Cap One, 
that company is so advanced in AI that, that it'll blow your mind. I mean, again, simple example. If Let's assume you use your credit card to go to the liquor store once a week and you know you do it repeatedly you you will find that the ai sitting inside you know the credit card company's uh, computers will say hey this guy is going to the liquor store once a week and we know that people who go to liquor stores once a week ultimately won't pay their debt and therefore we're going to reduce the amount of uh, credit that we allow this guy Conversely, let's assume that you use your credit card to pay off your church uh, obligation each week. Totally different. You know, the, the, the uh, computer sees that totally differently. So, you know, these decisions are being made, you know, without anybody, any humans being involved in them. You want further example. Let's assume you take your car in to be repaired, you know, uh, you know three times a row in a, in a, in a three-month period. The, the computer picks that up. I mean, Pittsburgh National Bank, as a matter of fact, does this all the time. You know, the computer picks up that you, you've been doing that and decides that you need a new car. So what does it do? Uh, without talking to any human being, it, it types out a little letter to you indicating that PNC has great rates on credit cards right now. And then it types another letter and sends that to the local bank branch and says, do you know that Joe Jones or Nancy Jones, you know, needs to get a new car? Give them a call and tell them what the rates are at uh, PNC. So, you know, and, 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 you know, we've been using AI, and AI has been very effective, certainly in, in the financial sector, but we, we need to use more and more of it to lower the cost of creating goods and services because if the United States is going to maintain itself, you know, in the world economy, it must have the technology to drop the prices of the products it creates lower and those products have to be superior in nature. And AI is going to help us do that. And therefore, I, I am a huge, huge supporter of the use of AI. Just yep. going to come in here, Dick. Next time I'm, I'm in the liquor store, I'm going to pay in cash. <laughs> You're going to change the money supply then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send my friend. But picking up on a few things Dick said, you're absolutely right. We need to bring manufacturing back to the United States and, and to have better uh, productivity enhancing techniques. And AI can contribute to that. McKinsey came out with a recent report and estimates that we'll have some 12 million jobs in transition over the next five to six or seven years. In other words, people in their jobs today will they will move out of that into two other hopefully higher paying jobs and it also called for workforce training so employees will be ready to make that great great leap forward you know you look at the banking sector people for years were saying oh there were shutting branches and dick has all the stats and that and i guess net net there may be less branches i don't have the exact numbers but overall employment in banking in america has grown over the last decade, because a lot of those jobs are in AI kind of jobs, they're in, you know, functional services, in 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 you know, assisting customers in, in the back office. So overall, AI is is a is something we should welcome. I know the SEC has also been looking at AI. There's some nervousness among regulators that it could be uh, abused. Naturally, regulators get nervous about anything. So they may curb the use of AI in terms of investment advice, but that's that's a whole separate debate. We're, unfortunately, we're coming up toward the end here. 
So I, I, we have a, a question that we ask everybody at the end of all our podcasts. So, and I'm going to start with Matt with this one. And it's the question is, is what should we have asked you, but we didn't? You should have asked us about Fed now. And, and and the new and the new Fed payment system and is are we all going to go down the route of uh, CBDC central bank um, digital currencies and it will be the end of society as we know it that's the question you should have been asking okay. we actually we actually had that on the list but we didn't get to it because of time so that's perfect so Matt is it going to be the end of society as we know it with CBDCs and Fed now payment no I mean this is ridiculous. <laughs> First off, we already have a CBDC. It's you know the, the a central bank digital currency. When people are talking about it in like this uh, dark terms, they're talking about it as if it's you know a, 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 to displace Bitcoin, and then the the government's going to come in and and control your purchases. And, and Dick's right that they're going to you know charge you more more because you bought liquor instead of uh, asparagus or whatever. We already have that. The the central bank digital currency is the U.S. dollar. All of all of the um, banks have a general ledger that's kept by the Federal Reserve, which corresponds to your checking account, which corresponds to your credit card account, which is all linked to you via your social security number. And they can they could turn you off right now if they wanted to. The conspiracy theories are a joke. And FedNow is a great innovation. I mean, you look back at the 1800s, one of the biggest problems they had was to get money from San Francisco to New York. You had to put it on the Pony Express, and it would take 10 days. You finally got to a point where it took less than a few days in the last decade or two, and now we're getting it to the last few seconds. I can't imagine anyone would want to go back to the world where it takes four or five weeks to get money from your one checking account to another checking account. This is a great innovation and it's great for society. And I agree on the AI points. That's also great for society. All these things are helping advance and improve the quality of life for everybody. Dick, I'm going to pass this off to you. The same question. Well, you know, I think the area that I'm kind of really fascinated by at the present time is the movement of population. You know, in 1750, I guess everybody argues, you know, the West, you know, uh, began to conquer the world. And they did it uh, with, a, you know, one out of every five people on the planet living in Europe. And they were able to build these advanced ships and these advanced guns, and they went out and they conquered the world, right? That, that's no longer what we're seeing. Now, Europe is one fifteenth of all of the people in the world. Over the next 27 years, uh, it's projected by the United Nations that uh, Europe will have fewer people in 2050 than they have today. And only a million fewer, but there'll be fewer people 27 years from now than we have today. Conversely, if you take a look at uh, Africa and, and you look at the, uh, you know, the, what the, we'll call it the Deep South, India and that area, uh, in Africa, there'll be more people in Nigeria than there'll be in the United States. There'll be, there, there won't be one European country in the top 20 in population in the world. There'll be two people in India for every one person in Europe. And now, unlike 1750, when we had a lock on the superior technology, you know, technology is being spread around the world. So I think, uh, you know, that that's going to be a big issue. In addition to which, think about it. There are more people in Egypt than there are in Russia. All, are all these people going to sit in Egypt and starve? Or, or you know, you, you have these uh, programs on television which show all these villages in France where there are no people, nobody's living there. These people are going to move from these countries which have this massive increase in growth 
I mean, Ethiopia, Sudan, you know, staggering amounts of people relative to the number of people, more people than there'll be in Germany, which is the biggest European country. So the, the net effect is, are they going to stay and starve where they are, or are they going to move into Europe? Are they going to move into Russia? Are they going to move to where they can find, you know, a living? And I think that what is happening when they start to move? You know, uh, I'll give you one final example, and I apologize. You know, I was in Istanbul about 25 years ago, and I wanted to see the Hagia Sophia, which was, you know, I don't know, 1,500, 1,600 years old. You know, it was the most magnificent building in the world. It was filled with gold and, and, and jewels and, and, you know, silver, and, and the walls were covered with draperies made out of, you know, gold lame, and, and the statues had ruby eyes and things of that nature. So I walk into this building, it's empty. I don't even know where the altar was. You know, it's all, you know, it's all bare walls, scaffolding, you know, uh, you know, buckets and, 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 and brushes around. It's, there's nothing there. It's, you know, one of the most, still one of the most magnificent buildings ever built, you know, but the point is it's empty because when the Muslims took over Istanbul, uh, Constantinople and named it Istanbul, they built the Great Blue Mosque. They took away the, the if you will, culture that existed, and they put a new culture there. And that new culture, you know, is what we're going to be dealing with as people move out of Africa, as they move out of, uh, you know, countries which have large amounts of populations growing it very rapidly into countries that are, that are decreasing in population. You know, in, in, look at the Netherlands today, uh, what, what's happening in, in the legislature there. Look at what's happening in Italy with the massive decline in population that you're seeing there. I, I think this is a huge issue. It's a big issue, and it's got to be discussed. Which I just well, I've got. I've got one more question I want to ask everybody for fun as we get ready to wrap up here. And I know we got to be real quick on this one. And who would think that we'd be asking this question? But talking about culture shifts and culture changes, just yesterday on Capitol Hill, we had the first public hearings on UFOs, UAPs, and non-human intelligence. So, real quickly, let's go around here, just for fun. Do you think we're alone in the universe? John, let's start with you. Um, gosh. No, I never feel alone, but um, I thought that was quite a show, quite a circus. Um, I'm not sure what they were smoking or drinking, but I haven't seen any UFOs in the New York, New Jersey area, and uh, I'm quite sober. <laughs> Matt? I, I really hope that it's real. I would love for that to be the next news. But right now, where's the beef? All everything that we heard yesterday, you know, David Fravor and and um, the other pilot, you know, that's kind of videos we've all seen, and they didn't produce anything new. And then I, I really respect Mr. Grouch, who came out, and he's the the official whistleblower. But everything he said was kind of hearsay. Like people who know have told me, people who worked on these projects have told me. But you know, where's the where is the actual witness that says I was there? These are the pictures. This is the video. I, I would love for it to be true. And I, you know, I kind of go back to the idea that, no, I don't think we're alone in the universe, but it's so big. How do they get here? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical that this, this is uh, a cover story for, for advanced technologies that the U S government is working on and, and don't want our enemies to know about. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think, I don't believe in UFOs at all, but I do strongly believe that if you've got a billion planets out there, uh, in, in who knows how many galaxies, there's got to be life somewhere else. 
whether it's life like we know it here or not. I don't know whether it ever gets here or not. I don't know, but uh, I, I don't. I don't see this as being an issue, you know, for at least the next fifteen hundred years. Well, thanks for indulging on that. And who knows, guys? By the next time we meet, maybe there will be a smoking gun. That's um, right. By then, we'll we'll see. But uh, we can't thank you all enough for being with us today. I'm going to kick it back over to Ives to get ready to wrap up. But fascinating conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fascinating is probably an understatement. So I appreciate everybody being here. These are always great conversations. We we had one topic which we didn't cover, so we're going to have to have you guys back. Uh, hopefully in the fall, we'll get another update. It'll seem like it's probably a, two or three months is an eternity these days. We'll actually have a, a presidential debate passed. So who knows what what will happen after that? Uh, who, who else will enter it? But we didn't talk about climate change. And I know that's not uh, either of yours expertise, but it's certainly, you know, wondering what the impact about that is going to be on the economy, especially if we we lose uh, Miami and parts of New York to the sea. In, in the next, I don't want uh, you to 30, lose Miami. <laughs> That's where uh, Dick is down in Florida, so please stay yeah, yeah. safe in Miami. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Or New York. You know, I just, I, I just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just read about where they projected that the uh, the water will rise up to. But it's fascinating. Thank you very much. I know you guys got a crazy busy schedule, especially in this time of the year, the year with earnings coming out and, and all the news. Appreciate you being here and uh, having this conversation. For everyone else, uh, thank you for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thanks for being part of uh, Googleization Nation. Next week, we'll be back at our regular time, Wednesdays, 1 p.m. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.